Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Rob Reads to You. Uh, I am recording from my, you know, secret, undisclosed, quarantined location. It, it's my bed. Um, with the uh, second recording I've made this year, so, you know, I'm really ramping the production uh, back up. I'm already up on the past, like, three years or so. Um, but anyway, we are continuing with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, in our last installment, uh, Anne tried to throw a dinner party for a, a famous novelist that she's a big fan of that, um, you know, all sorts of things went wrong, but the novelist ended up not showing up anyway, so it didn't really, you know, matter so much. Um, and mistakes were made, and Anne tried to fix them, and more hijinks ensued, etc. Um, and... Um, I'm going to be honest, because I, I've been kind of putting off making this recording, because this upcoming chapter um, is, uh, it's another Paul Irving one, uh, you know, so buckle yourself up for excitement here. All right. Chapter, I'm sorry, I've already made my feelings known on, on Paul Irving. But anyway, chapter 19, Just a Happy Day. After all, and it said to Marilla once, I believe the nicest and sweetest days are not those on which anything very splendid or wonderful or exciting happens, but just those that bring simple little pleasures following one another softly, like pearls slipping off a string. Life at Green Gables was full of just such days, for Anne's adventures and misadventures, like those of other people, did not all happen at once, but were sprinkled over the year, with long stretches of harmless, happy days between filled with work and dreams and laughter and lessons. Such a day came late in August. In the forenoon, Anne and Diana rode the delighted twins down the pond to the sand shore to pick sweet grass and paddle in the surf over which the wind was harping an old lyric learned when the world was young. In the afternoon, Anne walked down to the old Irving place to see Paul. She found him stretched out on the grassy bank beside the thick fir grove that sheltered the house on the north, absorbed in a book of fairy tales. He sprang up radiantly at the sight of her. "'Oh, I'm so glad you've come, teacher,' he said eagerly, "'because Grandma's away. You'll stay and have tea with me, won't you? It's so lonesome to have tea all by oneself. You know, teacher. I've had serious thoughts of asking young Mary Jo to sit down and eat her tea with me, but I expect Grandma won't approve.' She says the French have to be kept in their place. Well, that's nice. And anyhow, it's difficult to talk with young Mary Jo. She just laughs and says, Oh, he's talking in a French accent here. All right. Or French-Canadian, presumably. So I've got to do... All right. You know how I am with accents. And this is some kid doing an impression of an accent. Right. And says... Well, used to be all the kids I ever knowed. I have no idea what accent that actually ended up being. I'm sorry. That isn't my idea of conversation. Of course I'll stay to tea, said Anne gaily. I was dying to be asked. My mouth has been watering for some of your grandma's delicious shortbread ever since I had tea here before. Paul looked very sober. If it depended on me, teacher... He said, standing before Anne with his hands in his pockets and his beautiful little face shattered with sudden care. You should have shortbread with a right good will. But it depends on Mary Jo. I heard Grandma tell her before she left that she wasn't to give me any shortcake because it was too rich for little boys' stomachs. 
but maybe Mary Jo will cut some for you if I promise I won't eat any. Let us hope for the best. Yes, let us, agreed Anne, whom this cheerful philosophy suited exactly. And if Mary Jo proves hard-hearted and won't give me any shortbread, it doesn't matter in the least, so you are not to worry over that. You're sure you won't mind if she doesn't? said Paul anxiously. Perfectly sure, dear heart. Then I won't worry, said Paul with a long breath of relief, especially as I really think Mary Jo will listen to reason. She's not a naturally unreasonable person, but she has learned by experience that it doesn't do to disobey Grandma's orders. Grandma is an excellent woman, but people must do as she tells them. She was very much pleased with me this morning because I managed at last to eat all my plateful of porridge. It was a great effort, but I succeeded. Grandma says she thinks she'll make a man of me yet. But, teacher, I want to ask you a very important question. You will answer it truthfully, won't you? I'll try, promised Anne. Do you think I'm wrong in my upper story? asked Paul, as if his very existence depended on her reply. Goodness, no, Paul, exclaimed Anne in amazement. Certainly you're not. What put such an idea into your head? Mary Jo, but she didn't know I heard her. Mrs. Peter Sloan's hired girl Veronica came to see Mary Jo last evening, and I heard them talking in the kitchen as I was going through the hall. I heard Mary Jo say, "Dat Paul, he is the queerest little boy. He talks that queer. I think there's something wrong in his upper story. Yeah, there's going to be a little more of that coming up, so I'm sorry. I couldn't sleep last night for ever so long thinking of it and wondering if Mary Jo was right. I couldn't bear to ask Grandma about it somehow, but I made up my mind I'd ask you. I'm so glad you think I'm all right in my upper story. Of course you are. Mary Jo is a silly, ignorant girl, and you are never to worry about anything she says, said Anne indignantly, secretly resolving to give Mrs. Irving a discreet hint as to the advisability of restraining Mary Jo's tongue. Well, that's a weight off my mind, said Paul. I'm perfectly happy now, teacher, thanks to you. It wouldn't be nice to have something wrong in your upper story, would it, teacher? I suppose the reason Mary Jo imagines I have is because I tell her what I think about things sometimes. It is a rather dangerous practice, admitted Anne, out of the depths of her own experience. Well, by and by I'll tell you the thoughts I told Mary Jo, and you can see for yourself if there's anything queer in them, said Paul. But I'll wait till it begins to get dark. That is the time I ache to tell people things, and when nobody else is handy, I just have to tell Mary Jo. But after this, I won't, if it makes her imagine I'm wrong in my upper story. I'll just ache and bear it. And if the ache gets too bad, you can come up to Green Gables and tell me your thoughts, suggested Anne, with all the gravity that endeared her to children, who so dearly love to be taken seriously. Yes, I will. But I hope Davy won't be there when I go, because he makes faces at me. I don't mind very much, because he is such a little boy, and I am quite a big one, but still it is not pleasant to have faces made at you. And Davy makes such terrible ones. Sometimes I am frightened he will never get his face straightened out again. He makes them at me in church when I ought to be thinking of sacred things. Dora likes me, though, and I like her, but not so well as I did before she told Minnie Mae Barry that she meant to marry me when I grow up. I may marry somebody when I grow up, but I'm far too young to be thinking of it yet, don't you think, teacher? Rather young, agreed teacher. Speaking of marrying, reminds me of another thing that has been troubling me of late. 
continued Paul. Mrs. Lind was down here one day last week having tea with Grandma, and Grandma made me show her my little mother's picture, the one Father sent me for my birthday present. I didn't exactly want to show it to Mrs. Lind. Mrs. Lind is a, a good, kind woman, but she isn't the sort of person you want to show your mother's picture to. You know, teacher. But of course I obeyed Grandma. Mrs. Lind says she was very pretty, but kind of actressy looking, and must have been an awful lot younger than Father. Then she said, Some of these days your pa will be marrying again, likely. How will you like to have a new ma, Master Paul? Well, the idea almost took my breath away, teacher, but I wasn't going to let Mrs. Lind see that. I just looked her straight in the face, like this, and I said, Mrs. Lind, father made a pretty good job of picking out my first mother, and I could trust him to pick out just as good a one the second time. And I can trust him, teacher, but still, I hope if he ever does give me a new mother, he'll ask my opinion about her before it's too late. There's Mary Jo coming to call us to tea. I'll go in and consult her with her about the shortbread. As a result of the consultation, Mary Jo cut the shortbread and added a dish of preserves to the bill of fare. Anne poured the tea, and she and Paul had a very merry meal in the dim old sitting room, whose windows were open to the gulf breezes, and they talked so much nonsense that Mary Jo was quite scandalized, and told Veronica the next evening that Disculmis was quite as queer as Paul. After tea, Paul took Anne up to his room to show her his mother's picture, which had been the mysterious birthday present kept by Mrs. Irving in the bookcase. Paul's little low-ceilinged room was a soft whirl of ruddy light from the sun that was setting over the sea, and swinging shadows from the fir trees that grew close to the square, deep-set window. From out this soft glow and glamour shone a sweet, girlish face, with tender mother eyes that was hanging on the wall at the foot of the bed. "'That's my little mother,' said Paul with loving pride. I got Grandma to hang it there when I'd seen, or where I'd see it as soon as I opened my eyes in the morning. I never mind not having the light when I go to bed now, because it just seems as if my little mother was right here with me. Father knew just what I would like for a birthday present, although he never asked me. Isn't it wonderful how much fathers do know? Your mother was very lovely, Paul, and you look a little like her. But her eyes and hair are darker than yours. My eyes are the same color as father's, said Paul, flying about the room to heap all available cushions on the window seat. But father's hair is gray. He has lots of it, but it is gray. You see, father is nearly fifty. That's a ripe old age, isn't it? But it's only outside he's old. Inside, he's just as young as anybody. Now, teacher, please sit here, and I'll sit at your feet. May I lay my head against your knee? That's the way my little mother and I used to sit. Oh, this is real splendid, I think. Now, I want to hear those thoughts which Mary Jo pronounces so queer, said Anne, patting the mop of curls at her side. Paul never needed any coaxing to tell his thoughts, at least to congenial souls. I thought them out in the fir grove one night, he said dreamily. Of course, I didn't believe them, but I thought them. You know, teacher. And then I wanted to tell them to somebody, and there was nobody but Mary Jo. Mary Jo was in the pantry setting bread, and I sat down on the bench beside her, and I said, Mary Jo, do you know what I think? I think the evening star is a lighthouse on the land where the fairies dwell. 
And Mary Jo said, Well, yous are de queer one. There ain't no such thing as fairies. I don't know. Is that sounding Caribbean? I don't know. If, I don't know. If it's written weird. And that's totally not my fault that it sounds weird. Yeah. I was very much provoked. Of course, I knew there are no fairies, but that needn't prevent my thinking there is. You know, teacher. But I tried again quite patiently. I said, well then, Mary Jo, do you know what I think? I think an angel walks over the world after the sun sets. A great, tall, white angel with silvery folded wings and sings the flowers and birds to sleep. Children can hear him if they know how to listen. Then Mary Jo held up her hands all over flower and said, Well, yous are de queer little boy. Yous make me feel scared. And she really did look scared. I went out then and whispered the rest of my thoughts into the garden. There was a little birch tree in the garden and it died. Grandma says the salt spray killed it. But I think the dryad belonging to it was a foolish dryad who wandered away to see the world and got lost. And the little tree was so lonely it died of a broken heart. And when the poor, foolish little dryad gets tired of the world and comes back to her tree, her heart will break, said Anne. Yes, but if dryads are foolish, they must take the consequences, just as if they were real people, said Paul gravely. Do you know what I think about the new moon, teacher? I think it is a little golden boat full of dreams. And when it tips on a cloud, some of them spill out and fall into your sleep. Exactly, teacher. Oh, you do know. And I think the violets are little snips of the sky that fell down when the angels cut out holes for the stars to shine through. And the buttercups are made out of old sunshine. And I think the sweet peas will be butterflies when they go to heaven. Now, teacher, do you see anything so very queer about those thoughts? No, laddie dear, they are not queer at all. They are strange and beautiful thoughts for a little boy to think. And so people who couldn't think anything of the sort themselves, if they tried for a hundred years, think them queer. But keep on thinking them, Paul. Someday you are going to be a poet, I believe. When Anne reached home, she found a very different type of boyhood waiting to be put to bed. Davy was sulky, and when Anne had undressed him, he bounced into bed and buried his face in the pillow. Davy? You have forgotten to say your prayers, said Anne rebukingly. No, I didn't forget, said Davy defiantly, but I ain't going to say my prayers any more. I'm going to give up trying to be good, because no matter how good I am, you'd like Paul Irving better. So I might as well be bad and have the fun of it. I don't like Paul Irving better, said Anne seriously. I like you just as well, only in a different way. But I want you to like me the same way, pouted Davy. You can't like different people the same way. You don't like Dora and me the same way, do you? Davy sat up and reflected. No, he admitted at last. I like Dora because she's my sister, but I like you because you're you. And I like Paul because he is Paul, and Davy because he is Davy, said Anne gaily. Well, I kind of wish I'd said my prayers then, said Davy, convinced by this logic but it's too much bother getting out now to say them. I'll say them twice over in the morning, Anne. Won't that do as well? No, Anne was positive it would not do as well. So Davy scrambled out and knelt down at her knee. When he had finished his devotions, he leaned back on his little bare brown heels and looked up at her. 
Anne. I'm gooder than I used to be. Yes, indeed you are, Davy, said Anne, who never hesitated to give credit where credit was due. I know I'm gooder, said Davy confidently, and I'll tell you how I know it. Today, Marilla gave me, gave me two pieces of bread and jam, one for me and one for Dora. One was a good deal bigger than the other, and Marilla didn't say which was mine. But I give the biggest piece to Dora. That was good of me, wasn't it? Very good, and very manly, Davy. Of course, admitted Davy. Dora wasn't very hungry, and she only ate half her slice, and then she'd give the rest to me. But I didn't know she was going to do that when I give it to her, so I was good, Anne. In the twilight, Anne sauntered down to the Dryad's bubble and saw Gilbert Blythe coming down through the dusky, haunted wood. She had a sudden realization that Gilbert was a schoolboy no longer, and how manly he looked. The tall, frank-faced fellow with the clear, straightforward eyes and the broad shoulders. Anne thought Gilbert was a very handsome lad, even though he didn't look at all like her ideal man. She and Diana had long ago decided what kind of a man they admired, and their tastes seemed exactly similar. He must be very tall and distinguished-looking, with melancholy, inscrutable eyes and a melting, sympathetic voice. There was nothing either melancholy or inscrutable in Gilbert's physiognomy, but of course that didn't matter in friendship. Gilbert stretched himself out on the ferns beside the bubble and looked approvingly at Anne. If Gilbert had been asked to describe his ideal woman, the description would have answered point for point to Anne, even to those seven tiny freckles whose obnoxious presence still continued to vex her soul. Gilbert was as yet little more than a boy, but a boy has his dreams as have others, and in Gilbert's future there was always a girl with big, limpid gray eyes and a face as fine and delicate as a flower. He had made up his mind also that his future must be worthy of its goddess. Even in quiet Avonlea, there were temptations to be met and faced. White Sands' youth were rather fast set, and Gilbert was popular wherever he went. But he meant to keep himself worthy of Anne's friendship, and perhaps some distant day, her love. And he watched over word and thought and deed as jealously as if her clear eyes were to pass in judgment on it. She held over him the unconscious influence that every girl, whose ideals are high and pure, wields over her friends, an influence which would endure as long as she was faithful to those ideals, and which she would as certainly lose if she were ever false to them. In Gilbert's eyes, Anne's greatest charm was the fact that she never stooped to the petty practices of so many of the Avonlea girls. The small jealousies, the little deceits and rivalries, the palpable bids for favor. Anne held herself apart from all this, not consciously or of design, but simply because anything of the sort was utterly foreign to her transparent, impulsive nature, crystal clear in its motives and aspirations. But Gilbert did not attempt to put his thoughts into words, for he had already too good reason to know that Anne would mercilessly and frostily nip all attempts at sentiment in the bud, or laugh at him, which was ten times worse. "'You look like a real dryad under that birch tree,' he said teasingly. "'I love birch trees,' said Anne, laying her cheek against the creamy satin of the slim bowl, with one of the pretty caressing gestures that came so natural to her. 
Then you'll be glad to hear that Mr. Major Spencer has decided to set out a row of white birches all along the road front of his farm, by way of encouraging the AVIS, said Gilbert. He was talking to me about it today. Major Spencer is the most progressive and public-spirited man in Avonlea, and Mr. William Bell is going to set out a spruce hedge along his road front and up his lane. Our society is getting on splendidly, Anne. It is past the experimental stage and is an, is an accepted fact. The older folks are beginning to take an interest in it, and the White Sands people are talking of starting one, too. Even Le Elisha Wright has come round since that day the Americans from the hotel had the picnic at the shore. They praised our roadside so highly and said they were so much prettier than in any other part of the island. And when, in, good, in due time, the other farmers follow Mr. Spencer's good example and plant ornamental trees and hedges along their road fronts, Avonlea will be the prettiest settlement in the province. The aides are talking of taking up the graveyard, said Anne, and I hope they will, because there will have to be a subscription for that, and it will be no use for the society to try it after the Hall affair. But the aides would never have stirred in the matter if the society hadn't put it into their thoughts unofficially. Those trees we planted on the church grounds are flourishing, and the trustees have promised me that they will fence in the school grounds next year. If they do, I'll have an arbor day, and every scholar shall plant a tree, and we'll have a garden in the corner by the road. We've succeeded in almost all our plans so far, except in getting the old bolter house removed, said Gilbert, and I've given that up in despair. Levi won't have it taken down just to vex us. There's a contrary streak in all the bolters, and it's strongly developed in him. Julia Bell wants to send another committee to him, but I think the better way will just be to leave him severely alone, said Anne sagely. And trust to Providence, as Mrs. Lynde says, smiled Gilbert. Certainly no more committees. They only aggravate him. Julia Bell thinks you can do anything if you only have a committee to attempt it. Next spring, Anne, we must start an agitation for nice lawns and grounds. We'll sow good seed betimes this winter. I've a treatise here on lawns and lawn-making, and I'm going to prepare a paper on the subject soon. Well, I suppose our vacation is almost over. School opens Monday. Has Ruby Gillis got the Carmody School? Yes, Priscilla wrote that she had taken her own home school, so the Carmody trustees gave it to Ruby. I'm sorry Priscilla is not coming back, but since she can't, I'm glad Ruby has got the school. She will be home for Saturdays, and it will seem like old times to have her and Jane and Diana and myself all together again. Marilla, just home from Mrs. Lynde's, was sitting on the back porch step when Anne returned to the house. Rachel and I have decided to have our cruise to town tomorrow, she said. Mr. Lynde is feeling better this week, and Rachel wants to go before he has another sick spell. I intend to get up extra early tomorrow morning, for I have ever so much to do, said Anne virtuously. For one thing, I'm going to shift the feathers from my old bed tick to the new one. I ought to have done it long ago, but I've just kept putting it off. It's such a detestable task. Like reading a chapter about Paul Irving. It's a very bad habit to put off disagreeable things, and I never mean to do again, or else I can't comfortably tell my pupils not to do it. That would be inconsistent. Then I want to make a cake for Mr. Harrison, and finish my paper on gardens for the AVIS, and write Stella, and wash and starch my muslin dress, and make Dora's new apron. You won't get half done, said Marilla pessimistically. I never yet planned to do a lot of things, but something happened to prevent me.
Chapter 22. The Way It Often Happens Anne rose betimes the next morning and blithely greeted the fresh day, when the banners of the sunrise were shaken triumphantly across the pearly skies. Green gables lay in a pool of sunshine, flecked with the dancing shadows of poplar and willow. Beyond the lane was Mr. Harrison's wheat field, a great wind-rippled expanse of pale gold. The world was so beautiful that Anne spent ten blissful minutes hanging idly over the garden gate, drinking the loveliness in. After breakfast, Marilla made ready for her journey. Dora was to go with her, having been long promised this treat. Now, Davy, you try to be a good boy and don't bother Anne, she straightly charged him. If you are good, I'll bring you a striped candy cane from town. For, alas, Marilla had stooped to the evil habit of bribing people to be good. I won't be bad on purpose, but supposin' I'm bad accidentally, Davy wanted to know. You'll have to guard against accidents, admonished Marilla. And if Mr. Shearer comes today, get a nice roast and some steak. If he doesn't, you'll have to kill a fowl for dinner tomorrow. Anne nodded. I'm not going to bother cooking any dinner for just Davy and myself today, she said. That cold ham bun will do for noon lunch, and I'll have some steak fried for you when you come home at night. I'm going to help Mr. Harrison haul dulce this morning, announced Davy. He asked me to, and I guess he'll ask me to dinner, too. Mr. Harrison is an awful kind man. He's a real sociable man. I hope I'll be like him when I grow up. I mean, behave like him. I don't want to look like him. But I guess there's no danger, for Mrs. Lynde says I'm a very handsome child. Do you suppose it'll last, Anne? I want to know. I dare say it will, said Anne gravely. You are a handsome boy, Davy. Marilla looked volumes of disapproval. But you must live up to it, and be just as nice and gentlemanly as you look to be. And you told Minnie May Barry the other day, when you found her crying because someone said she was ugly, that if she was nice and kind and loving, people wouldn't mind her looks, said Davy discontentedly. Seems to me you can't get out of being good in this world for some reason or another. You just have to behave. Don't you want to be good? asked Marilla who had learned a great deal, but had not yet learned the futility of asking such questions. Yes, I want to be good, but not too good, said Davy cautiously. You don't have to be very good to be a Sunday school superintendent. Mr. Bell's that, and he's a real bad man. Indeed he's not, said Marilla indignantly. He is. He says he is himself, asseverated Davy. There he is asseverating again. He said it when he prayed in Sunday school last Sunday. He said he was a vile worm and a miserable sinner and guilty of the black, blackest iniquity. What did he do that was so bad, Marilla? Did he kill anybody or steal the collection sense? I want to know. Fortunately, Mrs. Lynde came driving up the lane at this moment, and Marilla made off, feeling that she had escaped from the snare of the fowler and wishing devoutly that Mr. Bell was n were not quite so highly figurative in his public petitions, especially in the hearing of small boys who were always wanting to know. Anne, left alone in her glory, worked with a will. The floor was swept, the beds made, the hens fed, the muslin dress washed and hung out on the line. Then Anne prepared for the transfer of feathers. She mounted to the garret and donned the first old dress that came to hand a navy blue cashmere she had worn at fourteen. It was decidedly on the short side, 
and as skimpy as the notable wincy Anne had, draw had worn on the occasion of her debut at Green Gables, but at least it would not be materially injured by down and feathers. Anne completed her toilette by tying a big red and white spotted handkerchief that had belonged to Matthew over her head, and, thus accoutred, betook herself to the kitchen chamber, whither Marilla, before her departure, had helped her carry the feather bed. A cracked mirror hung by the chamber window, and in an unlucky moment Anne looked into it. There were those seven freckles on her nose, more rampant than ever, or so it seemed in the glare of light from the unshaded window. Oh, I forgot to rub that lotion on last night, she said, she thought. I'd better run down to the pantry and do it now. Anne had already suffered many things trying to remove those freckles. On one occasion, the entire skin had peeled off her nose, but the freckles remained. A few days previously, she had found a recipe for a freckle lotion in a magazine, and, as the ingredients were within her reach, she straightway compounded it, much to the disgust of Marilla, who thought that if Providence had placed freckles on your nose, it was your bounden duty to leave them there. Anne scurried down to the pantry, which, always dim from the big willow growing close to the window, was now almost dark by reason of the shade drawn to exclude flies. Anne caught the bottle containing the lotion from the shelf, and copiously anointed her nose therewith by means of a little sponge sacred to the purpose. This important duty done, she returned to her work. Anyone who has ever shifted feathers from one tick to another will not need to be told that when Anne finished she was a sight to behold. Her dress was white with down and fluff, and her front hair, escaping from under the handkerchief, was adorned with a veritable halo of feathers. At this auspicious moment, a knock sounded at the kitchen door. That must be Mr. Shearer, thought Anne. I'm in a dreadful mess, but I'll have to run down as I am, for he's always in a hurry. Down flew Anne to the kitchen door. If ever a charitable floor did open to swallow up a miserable, befeathered damsel, the green gable's porch floor should promptly have engulfed Anne at that moment. On the doorstep were standing Priscilla Grant, golden and fair in silk attire, a short, stout, gray-haired lady in a tweed suit, and another lady, tall, stately, wonderfully gowned, with a beautiful, high-bred face and large, black-lashed violet eyes, whom Anne instinctively felt, as she would have said in her earlier days, to be Mrs. Charlotte E. Morgan. In the dismay of the moment, one thought stood out from the confusion of Anne's mind, and she grasped at it at the, as at the proverbial straw. All Mrs. Morgan's heroines were noted for rising to the occasion— no matter what their troubles were, they invariably rose to the occasion and showed their superiority over all ills of time, space, and quantity. Anne, therefore, felt it was her duty to rise to the occasion, and she did it, so perfectly that Priscilla afterward declared she never admired Anne Shirley more than at that moment. No matter what her outraged feelings were, she did not show them. She greeted Priscilla and was introduced to her companions as calmly and composedly as if she had been arrayed in purple and fine linen. To be sure, it was somewhat of a shock to find that the lady she had instinctively felt to be Mrs. Morgan was not Mrs. Morgan at all, but an unknown Mrs. Po uh, Pendexter, while the stout little gray-haired woman was Mrs. Morgan. But in the greater shock, the lesser lost its power. Anne ushered her guests to the spare room, and thence into the parlor, where she left them while she hastened out to help Priscilla unharness her horse. 
It's dreadful to come upon you so unexpectedly as this, apologized Priscilla, but I did not know till last night that we were coming. Aunt Charlotte is going away Monday, and she had promised to spend today with a friend in town. But last night her friend telephoned to her not to come, because they were quarantined for scarlet fever. Ooh, quarantine. Hmm. Hmm. So I suggested we come here instead, for I knew you were longing to see her. We called at the White Sands Hotel and brought Mrs. Pendexter with us. She is a friend of Aunt's and lives in New York, and her husband is a millionaire. We can't stay very long, for Mrs. Pendexter has to be back at the hotel by five o'clock. Several times while they were putting away the horse, Anne caught Priscilla looking at her in a furtive, puzzled way. She needn't stare at me so, Anne thought a little resentfully. If she doesn't know what it is to change her feather bed, she might imagine it. When Priscilla had gone to the parlor, and before Anne could escape upstairs, Diana walked into the kitchen. Anne caught her astonished friend by the arm. "'Diana Barry, who do you suppose is in that parlor at this very moment? Mrs. Charlotte E. Morgan, and a New York millionaire's wife. And here I am like this, and not a thing in the house for dinner but a cold ham bone, Diana!' By this time, Anne had become aware that Diana was staring at her in precisely the same bewildered fashion as Priscilla had done. It was really too much. "'Oh, Diana, don't look at me so,' she implored. "'You at least must know what—must know that the neatest person in the world couldn't empty feathers from one tick into another and remain neat in the process.' "'It—it—isn't the feathers,' hesitated Diana. "'It's—it's it's your nose, Anne.' "'My nose?' Oh, Diana, surely nothing has gone wrong with it. Anne rushed to the little looking-glass over the sink. One glance revealed the fatal truth. Her nose was a brilliant scarlet. Anne sat down on the sofa, her dauntless spirit subdued at last. What is the matter with it? asked Diana, curiosity overcoming delicacy. I thought I was rubbing my freckle lotion on it. But I must have used that red dye Marilla has for make marking the pattern on her rugs, was the despairing response. What shall I do? Wash it off, said Diana practically. Perhaps it won't wash off. First I dye my hair, then I dye my nose. Marilla cut my hair off when I dyed it, but that remedy would hardly be practicable in this case. Well, this is another punishment for vanity, and I suppose I deserve it, though there's not much comfort in that. It is really almost enough to make one believe in ill luck, though Mrs. Lynde says there is no such thing, because everything is foreordained. Fortunately, the dye washed off easily, and Anne, somewhat consoled, betook herself to the east gable while, while Diana ran home. Presently Anne came down again, clothed and in her right mind. The muslin dress she had fondly hoped to wear was bobbing merrily on, about on the line outside, so she was forced to content herself with her black lawn. She had the fire on and the tea steeping when Diana returned. The latter wore her muslin, at least, and carried a covered platter in her hand. "'Mother sent you this,' she said, lifting the cover and displaying a nicely carved and jointed chicken to Anne's grateful eyes. The chicken was supplemented by light new bread, excellent butter and cheese, Marilla's fruit cake, and a dish of preserved plums, floating in their golden syrup, as in congealed summer sunshine. There was a big bowl full of pink and white asters also, by way of decoration, yet the spread seemed very meager beside the elaborate one formerly prepared for Mrs. Morgan. 
Anne's hungry guests, however, did not seem to think anything was lacking, and they ate the simple viands with apparent enjoyment. But after the first few moments, Anne thought no more of what was or was not on her bill of fare. Mrs. Morgan's appearance might be somewhat disappointing, as even her loyal worshippers had been forced to admit to each other, but she proved to be a delightful conversationalist. She had traveled extensively and was an excellent storyteller. She had seen much of men and women, and crystallized her experiences into witty little sentences and epigrams which made her hearers feel as if they were listening to one of the people in clever books. But under all her sparkle, there was a strongly felt undercurrent of true womanly sympathy and kind-heartedness which won affection as easily as her brilliancy won admiration. Nor did she monopolize the conversation. She could draw others out as skillfully and fully as she could talk herself, and Anne and Diana found themselves chattering freely to her. Mrs. Pendexter said little. She merely smiled with her lovely eyes and lips, and ate chicken and fruitcake and preserves with such exquisite grace that she conveyed the impression of dining on ambrosia and honeydew. But then, as Anne said to Diana later on, anybody so divinely beautiful as Mrs. Pendexter didn't need to talk. It was enough for her just to look. After dinner, they all had a walk through Lover's Lane and Violet Vale and the Birch Path, then back through the haunted wood to the Dryad's Bubble, where they sat down and talked for a delightful last half hour. Mrs. Morgan wanted to know how the haunted wood came to by its name, and laughed until she cried when she heard the story and Anne's dramatic account of a certain memorable walk through it at the witching hour of twilight. It has indeed been a feast of reason and flow of soul, hasn't it, Anne, when her guests had gone and she and Diana were alone again. I don't know which I enjoyed more, listening to Mrs. Morgan or gazing at Mrs. Pendexter. I believe we had a nicer time than if we'd known they were coming and been cumbered with much serving. You must stay to tea with me, Diana, and we'll talk it all over. Priscilla says Mrs. Pendexter's husband's sister is married to an English earl, and yet she took a second helping of the plum preserves, said Diana, as if the two facts were somehow incompatible. I dare say even the English Earl himself wouldn't have turned up his aristocratic nose at Marilla's plum preserves, said Anne proudly. Anne did not mention the misfortune which had befallen her nose when she related the day's history to Marilla that evening, but she took the bottle of freckle lotion and emptied it out of the window. I shall never try any beautifying messes again, she said darkly resolute. They may do for careful, deliberate people— but for anyone so hopelessly given over to making mistakes as I seem to be, it's tempting fate to meddle with them. And that is where we are going to leave off for today. So thank you once again for listening to Rob Reads to you, sticking with me throughout everything that's going on. And uh, come back next time. We'll continue on with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thank you and have a good night, everybody.